0: Doubts in the house. Let me heat your bar. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scars. You don't feel about. Don't see us in the yard. This is warm. Don't for heart. Doubts in the house. Doubts
1: in the house. dogs in the house. Doubts in the house. dogs in the house. Doubts in the house. Doubts in the house. Doubts in the house. Hello and welcome to All We hear is Purple. It's the host. Victory over USC edition. I'm not your host, Andrew Berg, and we are the third or fourth most mediocre husky football podcast on the entire internet and the official podcast of the Cody Pickett fan club. We're now available on Apple Podcasts, it's Ditcher and all the other podcast apps. So make sure you can subscribe and rate and review our podcast and do the things that are good for podcasts for algorithmic reasons that nobody understands. I'm joined as usual by Gaby Lucas. Gaby, how are you feeling in the afterglow of beating USC?
0: Hello. I'm feeling good. Question, Mark? Um, I feel I feel very similar to the way I feel, felt after BYU, which was namely on defense. I'm like, "Oh, this is awesome. They can make they can make turnovers. They can create turnovers now." But then I'm like, "Oh, boy. That I wish they could create turnovers and also put themselves in positions where they weren't so necessary. Well,
1: yeah, let's let's get right into it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Talk about uh, the defense. I
1: think that's a good place to start in this game because holding USC with whichever number quarterback they're starting to 14 points is a really good thing. And there was a lot to like in the game plan and parts of the execution. If we're looking at the best parts of the defense, I think we'd obviously be starting with the secondary. They held USC. I'm not going to say Matt Fink because I want to give some credit to the extremely good receiving core because even with a bad quarterback, um, having those three receivers, St. Brown and Vaughn's and Pittman, it's always going to be tough no matter who the quarterback is. So Keith Taylor, Trent McDuffie, Cameron Williams, obviously with the two interceptions, Elijah Bolden, Miles Bryant. All had moments, if not whole games, that were really solid across the board. It's it's nice to see our secondary kind of rounding into shape the way that we've seen it the last few years, even if it didn't necessarily look as dominant the first couple games of the year.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think um, for for like obviously Matt Pink isn't very good, but I think to put it in perspective, like my great grandma. Could throw for four hundred yards with those receivers, and she's been dead for thirteen years. Like that, their their receivers are just so scary. So for for that, um, you know, for the secondary to play like they did, and then a lot of that was just scheme, you know. um Also, I think Keith Taylor, even though statistically he didn't really show up, like yeah, that was a really good bounce back game for him, um, after having you know a couple penalties and not being at his best necessarily the last few weeks, um yeah i don't know just overall i am there that's the thing that is very pleasing as a husky fan to be like if you guys can limit those guys no matter who the quarterback is like you're doing well period
1: taylor kind of had one of those Sidney jones type games i remember when he was at his yeah. best you just forget he was there because he took away totally. whoever he was covering so thoroughly uh Taylor had help at times when they ran that interesting like over-under double double coverage where they'd have somebody at the line jamming the receiver and then another safety or another corner behind him uh, giving some extra help. It seemed like they mostly did that to Pittman because Pittman and Fink had been so productive against Utah. Yeah. But uh, even setting those those plays aside, whoever he was covering, he was covering somebody who's probably an NFL talent, and they just Definitely. didn't even bother throwing in his direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was and then, you know, across
1: the board. Yeah. Yeah. Asa Turner yeah. had an interception. Uh, the, the two uh, Cameron Williams interceptions, you know, he's kind of been boomer bust at times. So it's been really Wait, Ace,
0: It was really Ace fun Ace to Turner see him. Did, did
1: no, I, I don't know why I was saying his that name. I think week. he, he had it. That
0: was Elijah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm, I'm mixing <laughs> up my uh, true freshman getting interceptions. Yeah, there's so many of them. Cameron Williams had uh, two.
0: Elijah Molden had his first. Molden had the
1: other. And year. almost a second.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting, yeah, now that you're getting confused, it's confusing me, and I'm picturing a whole bunch of stuff. But yes, I would die for Elijah. I, there's two people I would die for, Elijah Molden and Maya Rudolph. So maybe <laughs> I'm just going through a phase. Who knows? But like, <laughs> Is, that dude's been so much fun to watch so far this year. And just in general, you know.
1: Yeah, he's been super fun. I think we talked last week about how his just his ability to stick on whoever he's covering, which is especially valuable in that nickel roll, yeah. spot where quarterbacks can usually get a quick outlet. It just wasn't there. And I think the lack of easy completions was part of what made the game so hard for Fink. He finished with 5.1 yards per attempt, which is terrible. That's like Doreen Thompson-Robinson's average game and three interceptions, which Ooh, obviously- roasted. Yeah. I'm. you know, that, that that's a fact other than the Washington <laughs> state game. That's pretty much what he does every week. And it's just, it, yeah, no. i like think played really well against Utah. I don't know if he played well. He got really good results. He threw a lot yeah. of ducks. We talked I about that last are, week.
0: Yeah. Those are two very different things. Like you can, you know, if you're just playing 500 in the schoolyard, yeah, you can get good results with those receivers. Um, but, yeah, but that's sure.
1: why our secondary deserves credit because they didn't let him get results by doing that, which it seems like that was really the only avenue they had to success. Because they tried the same thing after a week of tape, and it didn't go any better. I will say USC did do a, quite a bit better in in the area that is proven to be our biggest defensive weak spot, which is just running between the tackles. Uh, it seems like defensive line actually probably played a little bit better, even against a very good. Trojan offensive line the linebackers just weren't filling the gaps they weren't making tackles and you once again you go down the list of leading tacklers and Kyler Manu shows up in there somewhere and Brandon Wellington is way down the list if he shows up at all and it's getting a little bit frustrating and I'm, I'm wondering if there's something we can do differently or if you anticipate something changing between now and the end of the season.
0: I like I like that your phrasing because as that was coming out of your mouth I hear you say I wonder if there's something we can do and I'm like are you suggesting a lead pipe like are you like us?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we could give Brandon Wellington a lead pipe.
0: Something it, to initiate like contact. Like what, that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And it's really kind of particularly frustrating because I think the defensive line is doing a pretty good job. Like they're considering, you know, that we were all crossing our fingers going to the season being like, okay, we have Levi, now we have Benning moving in. Um, And then we have the two redshirt freshmen, like who knows if they're going to hold their own. And I think, I think, especially as the season's gone on, they've really been performing pretty, you know, to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm not concerned about you guys. And so it's frustrating seeing them do their job and just have the inside linebackers be so out of position. And you're like, well, what... (laughs) Why? Why?
1: Yeah, and it showed up statistically because our our stuff rate was actually pretty good. It was 23-24%, which is above average. Meaning the plays where the defensive line gets penetration and just shuts down the run completely was above average. We're doing better at that than most teams do against, like we said, a good offensive line. It was just the plays where we didn't immediately shut it down. They were getting far more yardage than they should. There were no two and three yard runs there were zero yard runs yeah. and six seven plus yard runs which is not really what we're used to seeing and it seems like teams are kind of picking up on the fact that that's an area where you can pick on the defense
0: yeah for sure and I think I think that was kind of the thing I noticed too even though I didn't you know I didn't have the, the stuff rate stat down I didn't look at that but just by the eye test there's something that stood out to me it was like you know, like that goal line stand where they almost—I well, think it was third down—where Matt Fink ran it in, but they I mean they stuffed him at the line, like four. Nine, yeah. one, I think two or three times. Um, and and you know, there's multiple multiple examples of that throughout the game of just the defensive line just kind of willing the running game to just not happen. Um, and then, then you know, and then the next play, it's because they can't do everything. Uh you know, then the, the linebackers are out of position and you're like, ah, God damn it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it was guys so, like yeah. Ryan Bowman, who's yeah. nominally an outside linebacker, basically lines up with his hand in the dirt. Most of the time, uh, more or less playing defensive. And he was involved in quite a few uh, tackles near the line of scrimmage that you would normally see a middle linebacker coming in to fill the gap. And he just got off his block and made the tackle himself. And I guess that's just reiterating what we were saying that if our run defense is functioning, it's usually the defensive lineman doing it rather than, the linebackers, but you know, Bowman had a really solid game and, and the inside defensive lineman seems like Poto has been really solid across the board. Uh thule has been really good when he's been in and so on. So I, there are the building blocks there. You just have to hope that either Wellington starts playing a little smarter or maybe MJ Tafisi, uh, although it seemed like he did get a few more snaps this week and the results weren't all that much different hopefully he has the room to grow that maybe the more veteran players don't have, and he can show some improvement as the year goes on because it really doesn't seem like it's been getting a whole lot better.
0: Yeah. And I think that's kind of the thing is if, you know, if you see it the first couple games and then they kind of kick into gear, then okay, whatever. But I mean, you've had four years in the system for Tyler Manu five. And I think Tyler Manu, frankly, I think it's played better than Wellington. Yeah. Um, Not a high ceiling player, but he's been uh, fine. Yeah, not high ceiling, but he's, like, been all right for what we know he is. Um, But, I mean, when you look at the fact that they're still so out of position, and I just don't think they have the instinct um, to really be that reliable. And and by the time you're that far in the program, the standard um, or conventional wisdom would be, I mean, just in general, um, the marginal utility of you per game or per season. Uh, is, you know, is is diminishing as far as what reasonably it could be expected for him to improve versus a guy like MJ Tahiti, um, or Jackson Sermon. You know, I mean, they've only been in here a year. So for each game they play or each season they're here, that's, you know, so much more that they're taking in and so much more room for improvement. Um, So it's kind of one of those things where it, as a fan, my hope for the. Senior inside linebackers, specifically Wellington, is kind of like I don't really see any reason to or any reasonable logic where they get that much better. And my so all of my hope for an improved linebacking group would rest on the retro freshman. pretty much.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I, I speaking of success running the ball, that was essentially where we kind of made our money on the offensive side as well. Uh, Savan Ahmed, obviously, with the 89 yard touchdown run, that was huge. He even had, I think, other than his huge play, still averaged four yards a carry in pretty heavy usage the rest of the game. And fortunately, the 89 yarder does count. So his yards per carry average was quite a bit higher than that. <laughs> and for the game, it was five and a half yards per carry against a pretty solid defensive line, linebacking core. We didn't see a lot of Sean McGrew. Uh, Ahmed was really good. Newton was so so. Chico had a couple nice runs. Anything you saw in this game, in the running performance, that surprised you or that was different from the last couple games when we've seen, seemingly seen this running back core evolve and become kind of the lifeblood of the offense?
0: Um, I don't think there was anything in this game particular that felt that much different. What did feel really nice, though, was just knowing that um, USC's defensive line kind of reminds me of a defensive or a, a light version of their receivers in that you just look at each one of them and you're like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to play that, you know? So for them to be able to do, even taking away that 89 yard run, and having a 4.0 average per for run, like that's not that great, but against that defensive line, like I'm, I'll, t- you know, I'll take it. And then you add that 89 yard run, which obviously was more on their linebackers and secondary taking bad angles and then him paying to pay for it. But um, one thing, just in general over the season that I've been, but I mean I've been pleasantly surprised by the running back in general this season, and I know I've said that over and over. Um, but I think one thing specifically with Ahmed that has been really, um, just really nice to see is, yeah, he's not going to be someone who's going to fall forward in the way that uh, Gaskin did, or that McGrew is showing to do now, or Richard Newton and his ability to kind of power through guys. But I think his vision and his patience has pretty clearly improved. I mean, it's still not, he's still not the best at it. But I mean, he's definitely you can see where he's focused on that and how he's gotten better at it. Um, and that really showed in that that breakaway touchdown run um, because you know if you saw Savon Ahmed last year, the year before, in that situation, he probably would have just run straight into Jackson Kirkland's butt and fallen over. <laughs> And so to see him have that patience and to kind of wait just that smidge of a second for the holes to, to open up and, and to go is, is something that's just nice to see that improvement, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's an interesting point because seeing the blocks, being able to wait for them develop, to develop seems like such an instinctual skill that I, as we talked about, Ahmed in the past, I was always a little unsure if that's something he'd be able to develop. Like, can you get good at something that's instinctive? And I'm pleasantly surprised to see that he definitely has taken it, like you said, maybe not from weakness to great strength, but at least from weakness to non-weakness. So he has taken something that's not easy to improve on and shown meaningful improvement in that area, which is great. I also was curious, I, I, I'm just wondering if part of the reason McCrew wasn't in is related to what you were saying about that terrifyingly physical defensive line and whether he just might not hold up as a not normal sized human in pass protection. If he had to block somebody, I can't imagine him offering much resistance against any of the starting defensive linemen from USC. So hey, maybe that, maybe there were other game plan reasons for it, but it seemed like that would not be a good matchup for any of those linemen. It would probably step on him and we would still be scraping him off the field turf at this point.
0: Can you just imagine, though, for a second, how, like, Husky fandom aside, how funny it would be to watch John McGrew try to block Drake Jackson? I feel like it would. Like I would, I would be a USC fan for that play because that would just be hilarious. It'd
1: almost have to be like a, a Three Stooges routine where he'd have to either eye gouge him or like go down to all fours and try to trip him yeah. or something like that because no conventional means of blocking him would do anything at all. Like, what's yeah. he get to? pad levels low I guess that's one thing he's got on his side but it's probably not gonna be quite enough <laughs> extremely low nice man yeah
0: okay okay in this is this is I think his only help in football is it explicitly written in the rules that you cannot just hit like knee somebody in the crotch because he's right at striking distance there yeah and I know- think Drake Jackson's like six four he's like five like if it doesn't say you can't do it I think that's his best bet. Not to totally go on a tangent here or anything, but eh.
1: I think it's allowed if you yell "Give me back my purse" while you're doing it. Otherwise, it's considered unnecessary roughness, <laughs> but that justifies the situation. So he, if Drake Jackson stole John McGrew's or you know, man, European handbag and so on. Speaking of pass protection, uh, there there seemed like the passing offense was kind of designed around getting the ball out quickly there weren't a lot of slow developing deep roots the few times where there were relatively big plays they were generally to the tight ends k Otten had that drag over the middle where eason made a really nice throw uh, hunter bryant had a great catch and run not a great game for the receivers if you look at the yards per target fuller was not great and Michelli was bad like very bad but it seemed like the the passing game did what it needed to do, especially given as much credence as we paid to the USC defensive line. Any other feelings about how we kind of just did enough to get, get it, the job done in the passing game?
0: Um. Yeah, I mean, pretty much same feelings as you. I'm just kind of, you know, looking at what Aaron Fuller and Kelly were able to do or more accurately not. Um. It was kind of one of those things looking at it, where you're like, well, uh, okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, I I mean, on one hand, yeah, you're obviously going to be not, you're obviously not going to be trying to air it out with our receivers against their secondary, even considering that Alanoa Hafunga and Elijah Griffin were out. I mean, um, again, in my defensive preview that I talked about, they're just, and I preface this with Recruiting rankings are an inexact science, but over large sample sizes, they are very useful. Um, their, their whole 2D of their secondary averaged out to about 0.94 uh, ratings over on 24-7. So it's like you see the athleticism advantage that they have over the people they would be trying to cover. And you get inherently why Washington obviously wasn't going to throw a bunch against them. Um, that being said, yeah, it was kind of frustrating seeing how um, little the receivers could do. Um, Bryant and Otten were fun. Uh, I loved watching Kate Otten run through a guy for 10 yards, but yes. I mean, you can't, I don't know, it yeah. was it was definitely not a very reassuring game um, The the secondary's abilities and the defensive line's abilities make it, you feel a little bit better about it. But, you know, I think it was just more of the same for, for Washington.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's an accurate description. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. They did what they needed to do. It, it's kind of true for the whole game. They they took advantage of situations. It was oddly kind of a field position game in twenty nineteen. You don't see a lot of those anymore. At least outside of like LSU, or not even there anymore since they have a real quarterback at this point.
0: Not even them. Yeah, yeah. They they left it behind. Maybe South Carolina outside
1: still plays field position games. I, Iowa. Iowa. There you go. Three tight end field position games. Actually. As long as we're talking about field position games, we might as well uh, start talking about Stanford as soon as we come back from what we assume will be an ad as long as the software from the mothership is working. So stick around. We'll be right back to talk about Stanford and field position and long grass as soon as we get back. And welcome back. As promised, we're going to jump right into the Stanford preview. We were just talking about ball control offenses and teams that like to play uh, to field position advantage. That's typically what Stanford has done well. But this year's Stanford team has kind of been an aberration as far as David Shaw and even back to the Harbaugh years have gone. They've really been struggling without KJ Costello and Walker Little in the lineup. They have, they're have they two and three on the year. They beat Northwestern and Oregon State just last week by three points at a, on a field goal uh, by Jet Toner, the most printer-named person in all of football. They lost to Oregon, UCF, USC, all legitimate teams, but none of those games were particularly close. What are you thinking in your just general overall impression of the Stanford team so far, and is there any real reason to be concerned about them with where the Huskies are at the moment?
0: I mean, I I don't even... (laughs) Stanford to me is, this year, is the, the, the shrug emoji. I'm kind of... I mean, I didn't expect them to be super great considering, or at least, you know, statistically and record-wise, considering how brutal their schedule is and was. Um, And also, you know, losing J.J. A.W. on offense. um, And I think, I believe Caden Smith as well, and Bryce Love and all that. And, um, you know, obviously I, I assumed they would take a little bit of a step back on offense, but I mean, there's a little bit of a step back, and then there's this. And then same thing with the defense. It was like, okay, you guys, lose Bobby Okarike and Joey Alfieri and um, uh, Elijah Holder, I believe. Uh, but but still, it's just, it, it kind of, I just got so used to Stanford just doing what they did and it not really mattering. And even when they had step back years, quote unquote, it, it still being like a nine win team. So it's just, my brain's kind of short-circuiting right now with their status quo, you know?
1: Yeah, it's it's so abnormal. I think in some regard, their brains are short-circuiting in the same way because if you watch the way they play, they're still calling the same plays. They're using the three tight end sets. They're running power. They're not trying to spread the field at all, even though they don't have the offensive line. They don't have the blocking advantage. They're not getting push up front, uh, even against – Oregon State's defensive line they, they were just getting stuffed at the line of scrimmage they're on the year I think averaging something like 3.6 yards per carry and like we talked about that's against them they don't have patsies on their schedule where they're they're padding their stats with you know a 300 yard rushing game or whatever but it's not acceptable for a team that wants to run the ball all the time to be averaging three and a half yards per carry and they just keep doing it they don't have the personnel And then on the other side of the ball, like you said, they have this identity as a team that will always play defense. They've been giving up tons of passing yards. Even last week, not to say Jake Luton isn't a a respectable, solid Pac-12 quarterback, but he averaged about nine yards per attempt. I think the three games before that, each one gave up more than 11 yards per attempt. And those are the three losses, 45 points to USC, 45 points to UCF. They're, they're just getting shredded in the passing game. So this could be an opportunity for uh, the Huskies to pivot in a different direction than they were last week and, and air the ball out a little bit more and go downfield, use the receivers, make, you know, big plays uh, instead of just kind of taking care of the ball like they did last week.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, I think you, you're probably right. As far as predicting kind of what this game will look like um, philosophy wise, uh, I think I think it, I mean it made sense that they were playing more conservative against USC because, I mean, if you if you look at even when USC or even though USC is a total dumpster fire, I mean they still have the athletes to do stuff that you don't want them to do. So it made sense that they were playing conservative. Um, and then yeah, when I look at how Stanford has done um, defensively, especially against the past uh, the last few few weeks or i mean i guess i suppose this whole season um minus the northwestern game uh yeah i wouldn't be shocked if easton has another pretty significant statistical um you know takedown of them um i and i know we keep saying this every week but i really i could i do feel like we could see puka um in there as well just because i mean it makes sense you can't just go run around with two, fine, but not very great receivers all the time, question mark, although maybe you can't. Yeah, it seems like they've been
1: willing to try to this point. It's kind of uh, – like keep going down that road. I discovered – I think they mentioned this during the, the Oregon State-Stanford game that in a nine-year period, Stanford had five Heisman runners up and zero winners, Luck twice, uh, Gerhardt, Love, and McCaffrey, which is just a crazy stat. That Five times in nine years, they had the Heisman runner up. Maybe more impressive than Oklahoma just uh, sequestering or quarantining that award for themselves for the rest of time as long as Lincoln Riley's calling play. So I, that's kind of impressive. I think by, to that, by that token, I just assumed that Cameron Scarlett was really good, especially when he had some solid games filling in for Bryce Love. I'm starting to kind of wonder about that. He, he hasn't played very well this year. He had a couple nice runs last week, but it was really when uh, there were defensive lapses and guys were just out of position. Uh, you have an opinion on Cameron Scarlett? Do you think he's good, or is he just kind of another running back?
0: I don't – you know, I'm not – I'm kind of in holding mode where that's concerned because I think we saw the same thing or similar thing last year with Bryce Love with when their offensive line declined. Um, and I feel like the last year and a half or so, it's just kind of been their their offensive line has declined so much so by their own standards that it's kind of hard to judge a running back. Based on what you normally judge a Stanford running back by. Um, granted, you know, Miles Gaskin had plenty of times where he was met behind the line of scrimmage and he still got yeah. death. So, um, yeah. but yeah, I think I think Cameron Scarlett's performance to me is less indicative of his um, abilities. Although I think, with that being said, I think it is indicative that he's not, you know, he doesn't have the ability to single handedly change a game Heisman style. Um, but I think it's less indicative of him and more indicative of their line um, and kind of how that's declined the last two, three, four years, you know?
1: Yeah, that's probably right. And it's, it's probably unfair to, to, although that's just kind of the nature of the beast that the running back will get credit or blame, even though he's just the owner of the final product in a lot of those situations. But let's change gears a little bit. We don't usually talk a lot about recruiting, but we're in a crazy situation We just beat the Huskies. Just beat USC by two touchdowns. They're setting up as two touchdown favorites going into Stanford, and neither of those things are the thing that a lot of Husky fans are most excited about. So let's just take a couple minutes to gloat about Savelle Small's committing to UW. It's very exciting. Uh, I just want to ask first, what do you think? What are what do you think are reasonable or even unreasonable but fun expectations for him if he gets on the field as soon as next year? What do you think we can see from Savell as a true freshman?
0: Well, I think for one, I think obviously he's going to get on the field next year because unless you're a receiver uh, in, you know on the defensive side, if you're that good, you're getting on the field in this defense. Um, but otherwise, it's – I don't – recruiting victories of this caliber have hitherto been so rare, and I can't believe I used the word hitherto in a sentence, I kind of almost don't even know how to have how to have a reaction to this like I, I was in a meeting when the news broke on Friday and my phone kept on vibrating from our Slack channel and i just just thinking like oh my god shut up this is really annoying and then I looked at it uh, for a second and was like oh fuck. <laughs> you know like it was just so such a such a beyond that kind of experience I'm we're supposed to lose those <laughs> so when we get them I'm like oh Oh, God, what, uh, what's he going to do? Really well, probably? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just... I don't... I, yeah, there's not really any... What are you supposed to say to that question other than kick yeah.
1: hey, ass? Yeah. Well, yeah, at this point, it's all potential, so we might as well dream big, you know, 18 sacks, drop into coverage, pick the ball off six times, score four touchdowns, come in and tight end. Why not? Do it all. I, I think maybe you were hinting at it, but maybe the more impressive or important part of this situation is what it represents that we've seen a very clear upward trajectory in the team's recruiting output since Chris Peterson has been in charge. It's been almost a straight line. There have been you know, some small dips in certain positions from year to year, but the overall curve is that the team has gone from mostly recruiting three-star prospects to mostly recruiting slightly more four-star prospects than three-star prospects to now you know maybe you know this might be a product of where smalls and some of the you know heward and some of the rest of the top prospects for next year grew up but really getting in the mix for some of the very top players in the country and it's it's been fun to watch that development it's been weird to watch it but it's i i don't know if that's something that we can expect continue to see with players outside of washington you know do we start taking five-star recruits out of california can we you know Really establish a footprint in Texas as we seem seemingly tried to do in the last few years. It's it's like you said. It's time to dream big and just focus on on the positive and hopefully that momentum continues in an upward trajectory.
0: Yeah, and I think I think a lot for this is actually connected a lot to me to the whole oh can Chris, why isn't Chris Peterson winning big games? Um, and the fact is that with the talent, and again, recruiting rankings inexact, but recruiting matters, um, with the talent level that UW was playing with in 2016 and 2017, and frankly last year, um, given that most of that team was still the core seniors, you know, and a bunch of kids from 2015 from the class of 2015, um, the fact that they were able to get to where they were able to get to um, with those big bowl games, even them losing because that talent level was static, um, is still so significant that then when you see the recruiting reflect the results that are on the field, so that more and more high-level talents are interested in this program, that's when you unlock the ability to, you know, maybe actually beat those teams um, on in a large sample size. You know, so um, it's it's interesting seeing how a coaching regime kind of the trajectory that happens both on the field and in talent acquisition and how um how those are kind of intertwined uh and and for a lot of casual fans i think they don't necessarily and probably most people who listen are listening to this aren't quote-unquote casual fans but i'll have people uh you know my parents friends or whatever ask me about we're like oh what, what about what do you think about the ball <laughs> <laughs> or whatever and And explaining that and how the trajectory of a program, uh, you know, a coach gets hired, takes them a couple years to turn the program around. Then it takes the recruiting legs a couple years from there. So then you have a couple years uh, still moving forward where the talent level is still mostly the same, and then you get those recruits. But then you know because recruiting um, affects the performance on the field primarily two, three, four years down the line. Then you still aren't really going to see the majority of those that. Recruiting affecting the games until, you know, a couple years down. So seeing that growth and then understanding, okay, well, in 2018, 2019, and now 2020, the recruiting has significantly upped in response to the elevated level of play on the field for this program. And then thinking, okay, so now that we have this talent, oh shit, this team, really logically, there's no other reason to believe there'll be anything other than. Uh, what it is known in science as certifiably kick-ass and so I just think that's fun to watch that and know what it implies and it's you hit on
1: something interesting that there's been this virtuous cycle of winning on the field leads to acquiring better players and it's not a guaranteed causal relationship Peterson won a lot at Boise and the talent level never got to the point of being elite and so on down the line and there are other programs where that's been the case. And for a variety of reasons, that hasn't been a problem in Washington. They have built uh, the, the talent base up as the on-field performance has improved. And so it's kind of like now we've, we're two-thirds of the way there. So it's you start phase one, win more games with the players you have. Phase two, get better players. Phase three, become great with great players instead of very good with good players. So it's very exciting that we're headed down that road. Uh, speaking of, while well, we're, we're talking a little bit about teams that seem to be uh, heading on the right track as overall programs, we can talk a little bit about the rest of the conference uh, briefly. I think Cal is an interesting one in, in a similar vein. It seems like they were starting to turn that corner a little bit, maybe in that phase one of those three phases. And then they had a very tough game on Friday night. As Friday night, the Pac-12 was cannibalizing itself. But maybe more significantly, they lost Chase Garbers. Sounds like for most of the season, if not the whole season. So, lose to Arizona State, lose the quarterback who has at least done enough to let their defense win them some games. Do you think they can survive with Devin Modster for the rest of the season? Devin Modster had said his name very strangely, but uh, former UCLA, uh, not successful quarterback, now at Cal, and and yeah. it's kind of scary. Is there a, a optimistic? view of the Cal team the rest of this season?
0: Man, I, um, I, my gut is no solely because, well, the interesting thing is that monster looked okay when he was at UCLA and he looked very below average at Cal. So, I mean, maybe that was just him being thrust into there. Maybe it's Cal's offensive system. Um, and I suppose we'll probably see in the next couple of weeks. Um, I mean, the, I think the thing that Cal has going for them is their defense is so good and it's such the focus of their team in general that I think, you know, I think they can hold themselves in uh, in any game they have a chance with that defense. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> I don't have a lot of... I really don't have a lot of hope with Modster if I were them, which sucks also for Washington fans because they look pretty darn good at least i mean uh, their wins weren't by a high margin and so advanced metrics didn't really like them that much and also what that implies is that further on the line they probably would start losing some games anyway um but it also just sucks for washington that that likelihood of their losses happening more often now um has to come now right when they were looking kind of good and like maybe that loss was respectable. Um, so as UW fans, it's, it feels like one of those really moments. Yeah. Um, all we all had a lot
1: invested lost. in them finishing with like two yeah. or maybe three losses on the season, and now it looks like it could definitely go significantly above that. It's a little scary, so it's going to look like a worse loss at the end of the year. Nobody's going to – if we end up in a, on the borderline of the, the playoff at the end of the year, nobody's going to be looking back saying – well, they lost to Cal, but it did look like Cal might have the makings of being a season-long top 25 team if they're not that great quarterback who's just better than their really bad backup and so on. It's not – don't get the benefit of the doubt on that one. Um, Utah, who's another team that could seemingly make our strength of schedule look a little bit better, although we still have to play them and beat them if that's going to be the case. They look like they're back on track, or it might just be that uh, – Washington State is cratering and they're, what did Mike Leach say, fat and lazy and a bunch of other pejorative things that probably apply more to him than his players. Anyway, you give that more to Utah or to uh, Washington State being a little bit down at the moment?
0: Um, I I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I don't, I think it's a little bit of both. And then also when you look at the circumstances of of Utah's, lost to usc where it was just such a funky situation i think granted they should have won anyway if there's as, as good as as the people who were stupidly picking them as a dark horse for the playoff um were uh but yeah i think it's probably a little bit of both i think i think them kind of refiguring their shenanigans out and then also i mean wazoo's no stranger to cratering for a little bit and being terrible for a good two weeks and then being good again um, so yeah, I think, I think they'll, for the most part, I think Utah will probably come out and, and look pretty good for the rest of, of their, of their season. Um, and so I think for whatever happens against Washington, I think, I mean, that's good for us. Right. obviously It's it's, it's
1: a, a bit of a monkey off their backs because I believe Utah had been one and four against Leach at Washington, Washington state. So. Uh, not not a great result, and in, in even against some of the poorer WSU teams that they would faced. So it's a nice win for them. It's a bit of a styles clash with the way they like to pressure the quarterback going against the air raid that doesn't mind when you yeah. pressure the quarterback. And also of interest, uh, Washington State yeah. going into a bye week now. It'll be interesting to see how they come out of that because it seems like things are a bit fractious at the moment, and that could turned out really good or really bad being away from the field for a week. I don't know if they'd honestly rather get back on the field right away or if they want to let it stew for a little bit and, you know, get even fatter and lazier as it were. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see how they come back from that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it really is pretty much on their defense. Um, As far as it's just interesting seeing a Mike Leach defense that all of a sudden looks more like it did in, 2014 than it did last year so i don't know that may have
1: a little bit to do with alex grinch too you know he built seems to be responsible for turning that around a bit and now he's at oklahoma and their defense went from being abysmal last year to looking pretty good this year and is with all the same players so maybe he gets some of the credit there um
0: yeah oh i think he's a fantastic
1: yeah, yeah. All, in all indications are he knows yeah. what he's doing with telling guys where to line up and when to hit people. He's, he's got very good results from that. Uh, yeah. Let's...
0: You're saying we <laughs> Maybe tackle? we should have
1: him do the little consulting work with our linebacker core. It might, couldn't hurt. Uh, so let's wrap up with a little bit of uh, recommendations or plugs. You have anything coming up that you want to let people know about or anything non-football related that has been particularly entertaining in the last little bit?
0: Yeah. Well I did and then I awesome. got it, which is less well, I'll go than a first helpful. And... Yeah. I think I have a show. <laughs> on schedule. Yeah. Yeah, no, you go. You up go. it on Twitter. Look it up. Uh
1: well I'll I will talk briefly about uh the Between Two Ferns movie, which is on Netflix. It was a direct to Netflix release. It's Zach Galifianakis. if you've ever watched him do the Between Two Ferns very awkward interviews, which probably look a lot like what would happen what will happen when we eventually get cody pickett on this podcast but uh it's it was a feature-length movie all built around the premise of him having to record enough of these uh talk shows to get his own late night talk show It has a lot of great people in it it's benedict cumberbatch and matthew mcconaughey and david letterman and they're all very funny uh uh, built around zach galifianakis and several other very funny improvisers Uh, lauren lapkis plays his assistant she's hilarious and um Ryan Gall is a cameraman who's very funny as well and I believe uh, not written because it's mostly improvised but uh, kind of storyboarded and directed by Scott Ackerman and Zach Galifianakis who's he is a veteran of Mr. Show with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross and so on so very lots of very funny people involved and it's free to watch as long as you have Netflix and it's like 80 minutes long so it's the perfect length to just laugh for a little while and then forget about it forever. But it's very funny. So I I would recommend that. And hopefully that was enough time for you to get um, all the dates that you needed straightened out.
0: Okay. Well, I didn't actually look at a calendar because if I exit out of the app that we used to record, (laughs) I'm pretty sure it just shuts down and I was too scared to test it. Um, I do have a show on October 9th, I think. You Know what? I don't remember where or what time it is, so I'll plug that next week. Um, but you know what? Let's go with uh, two stand up specials, both are on Netflix. Oh, god, really that's funny. So funny. Yeah, Nate yes. guys, Also, a diehard college football, fans, football fan, fan never which he talks time. about in his special, so good!
1: Yeah, like one of the yeah, eight for, diehard for Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt fans.
0: like a nerd. Uh, yeah, I didn't know they existed. Yeah, so, anyways, uh, that's really good. Uh, you should watch it. He has for anyone listening to this, he has about four or five minutes about Mount Rainier. Uh, well, it's not about Mount Rainier. It's more tangentially related to Mount Rainier. Oh, um, no. Oh, and also Catherine Ryan has a really good one. Uh, she's Canadian. Um, it's called Glitter, Glitter Room? Yeah, it's called Glitter Room. Uh, that one is very great. The end. Those are my two for the Tuesday. Sounds great. For the week.
1: Those both sound good. So, uh, like I mentioned, join us next week at, when we hope to be joined by Cody Pickett himself. And we will awkwardly interview him a la Zach Galifianakis.
0: Cody Pickett? Yeah, I he did Bigot. like
1: uh, one of the blog's tweets. So I think we're like 90% of the way to getting him on the podcast. So
0: yeah.
1: uh, we'll we'll keep working that angle.
0: Here we go. Well, he, he liked that one tweet that I did a few months ago where I said that Cody Pickett was my first crush. <laughs> it was like nine.
1: It's so, kind of creepy for him go. to like that, but I mean, any case, uh, have a great week. Let's hope.
0: No, no, no. It was like a fun. It was like a fun dorky one. You know, like one. Of yeah, totally the, you know, not, not, weird. Weird. not weird. Not
1: weird at all. Totally, totally not cool. weird. We have fun here. So go yeah. dogs! Let's get the win at Stanford. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Do good things. Don't do bad things. And bow down to the coach. Bye. For me, you better